having been around the spiritual scene for so many decades and having interviewed so many people and all, I started out with the assumption and understanding that there was a tight correlation between higher states of consciousness and ethical behavior. And over the years, the the tightness of that correlation has gotten looser and looser in, in my understanding based upon observation. And it always puzzled me. And I've, you know, seen so many examples of harm and upset and, and confusion and damage and people leaving the spiritual path due to that dissonance on that particular issue. So that's why I wanted to give the talk. Let me just ask you, I mean, how many of you have heard of instances in which spiritual teachers have behaved inappropriately? <laughs> okay? Most. Some of you have been living under a rock, but... <laughs> and how many have been personally impacted by such behavior? Okay. All of us, you know, have, could say some things similar to what I just said, and um, had also been aware of this issue, and as a matter of fact, um, others' talks last year actually touched on some of the same themes. So after my talk, we all had lunch together, um, and we asked ourselves, you know, what, what can we do about it? Um, and we kind of hatched the idea of forming an association of professional spiritual teachers. Hold up our banner. Ta-da. Um, Ta-da. So over the course of the year, a lot of thought has gone into this, and, and I, I just want to acknowledge Jack for having been the primary engine on that train. She's really worked very hard. And what we've done is we've taken codes of ethics from various spiritual organizations, the Diamond Approach and Spirit Rock and various other things, and kind of you know, reviewed them and, and, and digested them and, and tried to mold them into a code of ethics which could perhaps be universal across the entire contemporary spiritual community. Our purpose in doing so, this, this has very much been a, a work in progress and a learning curve, and I think it always will be. And I, I want to dispel from the outset the first impression that some people have when they hear about a code of ethics or an organization with a board of people that have come up with that code. My wife initially started calling it the God Squad because there's this sort of implication that maybe we think that we are in some way morally superior to somebody and are able to tell them what they should or should not be doing. But that has really not been our sentiment. We've approached this thing with a constant sense of humility and introspection and acknowledgement of our own flaws and foibles and, and, and vulnerabilities and no sense of hierarchical superiority or we have no intention whatsoever of being in a position of granting or revoking licenses or any such thing as many professional organizations do in other professions, lawyers, doctors, and psychologists, and so on. But our hope is to enliven an understanding in, the, in our community, our larger community, of what is or may or may not be appropriate. Because there have been so many cases in which a teacher has behaved in a certain way, and students have abdicated their, their own judgment and their own discernment and have had attitudes such as, well, this really seems nutty, but this guy appears to be enlightened, and I certainly am not, so who am I to say? You know, it must be, there must be something to 
what he's doing, some justification or whatever. And that has, in, in many cases, allowed teachers and their followers to go way off the rails and to get into very messy situations. So our hope is to just have some code of ethics that teachers could ascribe to, and if they did, to join our organization and maybe put a little seal on their website or something, which might be like a good housekeeping seal of approval kind of thing where you know, there's some acknowledgement that certain standards are being recognized. And the students, in turn, would become more cognizant of, of these values and suggestions and perhaps have a higher standard or higher expectations for spiritual teachers and not be... The word hoodwinked comes to mind for some reason. But, you know, not be led astray and, and taken advantage of in any way whatsoever, sexually, financially, in any way. Uh, none of that really belongs in the realm of spirituality. Spirituality should be a growth into greater and greater healthiness in all, in all dimensions of our being. It shouldn't be an opportunity for anyone to, you know, just have indiscriminate romances with followers or, or you know, divest them of their life savings or, or any such thing. That is it's such a, a travesty of, of the whole intention of spirituality. And, um, and as I said in the beginning, and I'm about to finish speaking here and turn it over to others, it, it has caused a great deal of harm and disillusionment and confusion. So hopefully we can evolve out of that um, as a, again, a broader spiritual community, and we're making this little effort as uh, a means of, of fostering that growth. Okay, so who would like to speak next? We've been trying to keep in mind that we're looking at traditions that are over 2,000 years old, that we know of, and if we're you know, being part of this, this wave of where we're revisiting culture around patriarchy and power play and looking at more equality issues in the diverse nature of what it is to, to have a human expression. Um, we also have to see that we've got over 2,000 years of where the guru, the teacher, is beyond reproach. The teacher was in, you know, an enclosed order in monastic situations in so many traditions. And now, no, we, we live regular lives. And so the power play that is traditionally in place, where the student will bow down to the all-knowing teacher, has to be shattered and rebuilt in some more contemporary, honest, and open way that is reflective of our contemporary culture. We can't do this overnight. We need everybody's help to re reform, revisit, redesign what the future of spirituality is going to look like. We can't do it on our own. Um, what we can do is go on the journey ourselves as teachers and say, what would it be in me? to be challenged by a student to say, Jack, that's full of crap. Can I invite that in my own workshops of where I can introspect, reflect, be brutally honest, expose blind spots if there are blind spots, and how can that be done in a healthy way and yet maintain the core of what we're all doing there, which is in order to point towards truth. So it's not an easy task, and we're looking at, at I suppose, riding the wave of, of what is there with, in so many other areas in the world about, about looking at human rights. B 
because it is a violation of rights that happens so often for students, and it's not okay. The virtues that that you have as a teacher might have to be learned at a late stage in your own teaching career, and it is a career nowadays. We we have to pull it away from the mystical, mythical, unquestionable authority that has been part of what has protected the abuse for so long. You know, one of the things that I began to see, you know, working both as a teacher and as a therapist, is just meeting with with so many other teachers, students. And so oftentimes, you know, I would sit and hold the space and hear this, this tremendous pain that had happened. You know, whether it was, you know, someone being a young child and being a, abused by a priest or by you know, being sexually assaulted by a great non-dual teacher, you know, losing a, an inheritance to a guru because one may have thought that would have brought them special status or been in the inner circle or whatever it is. It's broken my heart again and again to see this rampant abuse. As a therapist, it's, it's a difficult place to sit, to sit and to listen to provide healing support and to do the trauma work and somatic experiencing and all this. But, but this thought just kept dropping into me again and again that all this, this suffering, it's unnecessary. It's, it's radically unnecessary. And so it's one of the things that we, we saw as a, as a community is that we don't need this. We don't need to go through this journey again and again. It's like one of these days the, the, the Catholic Church is going to wake up and say, we need to examine our issues with, with sex and sexuality and celibacy. You know, but it's not just the Catholic Church. And it happens in yoga centers and dharma centers and Buddhist centers and non-dual communities. I mean, it's, it's happening all over the world. And and this was an invitation that arose in all of us to say, yes, why don't we take some steps forward? Why don't we offer a community? Why don't we begin to, begin to have this conversation in a way that's healing, that's supportive? Because if we go on Google right now, we could find you know, a, a, another new student writing another blog about this teacher doing that thing. And that's, you know, how people are filing their grievances now. Mm. I mean, that's how this issue is coming forward. But that's exposure, but it's not necessarily healing. And to me, you know, one of the things when we were speaking about with Mariana Kaplan is, let's talk about preventative psychology, mm. preventative support. Let's speak about education and growth as a community so we're not busy playing cleanup. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's unnecessary. It's, it's ridiculously painful and unnecessary for anyone to spend two decades of their life you know, struggling with, oh, my guru did this to me. Does God exist? Does truth exist? Is anything for real? 
will I ever heal from this pain and wound? It's a ridiculous pain that is unnecessary. And us as a community, we're just wanting to begin this, this conversation. And again, like Rick was saying, not with judgment, not with condemning, not with saying, oh, you're in the group or you're not in the group. That's silly. That's nonsense. But how about we're all human? We live in an evolutionary world. You know, we can all admit that you know, relationship tends to be where most of us struggle. So let's talk about how to relate to our students, to each other, how to work with projection and transference and counter-transference, how to work with, with obedience and chastity and poverty. And poverty, you know, these, these great issues that have been, you know, that we've struggled with in spirituality for, for thousands of years. And yes. it's a necessary conversation. And that's what we, we're wanting to be a part of, is, is a conversation. It has nothing to do with judgment, but everything to do with growth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. When Rick invited me into this conversation, I was touched in particular that there's some attention being brought to the collective. And by that, I mean that I've had so many conversations with folks who've had been the recipient or on the receiving end of, of an abusive power in some form. And I feel intimate with that topic based on my own um, history in terms of spiritual practice. Uh, while mine wasn't uh, sexual, there's uh, a way in which I've been greatly benefited by seeing different models, um, specifically um, watching Rupert Spira teach and, and seeing that there... Uh, there's a way in which power dynamic um, and teacher being on pedestal is not a required piece of spiritual growth and development. And, that, and, and through my own experience, the recognition of abuses that can happen when there's confusion about that. And the collective piece that interests me is the way in which, as I've spoken to these folks who are the recipient of abuses of power, I've noticed that in almost all cases, there's a teacher who's um, on an island of sorts. There's, there's not collective interaction um, between other groups or spiritual communities. There's not, uh, they're not um, interrelating with colleagues in a way in which there's shared accountability. And just to underline what was just being said, the, the judgment piece around this doesn't interest me, but watching what's possible in our collective as we create forms of teaching that more accurately uh, reflect uh, truth in the greatest sense of the word interests me greatly, and I think there's a real hunger and a need for it. Um, and we don't have to look far in other communities to see the downfall of, of not meeting that need. In, this, in the spirit of um, wanting this to be a collaboration among the entire spiritual community and not something that we are just espousing or formulating, I'd like to open it up to questions even now. We have 45 minutes. We can have a discussion here. 
and um, go back and forth. So be sure to have a mic before you speak. Someone will be running around with a mic and uh, raise your hand so the mic person can give you the mic and, and then we'll talk. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very intriguing idea that I've thought a lot about myself. Um, and it reminds me a lot of the um, accreditation, I guess you'd say, that I received as a pastoral care person when I was a hospice chaplain. And one of the aspects of that was a kind of um, oh residency that we did where we learned, we didn't learn specific theological or spiritual practices or things like that as clergy people. But we did learn basic principles of pastoral care. I'm wondering if you might consider a two-month CPE, which is a clinical pastoral education kind of component, that would be required for this. It would only, it wouldn't take a lot of a commitment for somebody, and they would learn basic principles of how to deal with a person pastorally that I think would actually correspond very well to the spiritual teacher student relationship. And that's already a kind of component that's in place that I've often thought since I've been doing this work would be very helpful for a lot of spiritual teachers. It teaches them things like boundaries, um, how to introduce various um, challenges to people, like to challenge people in a way that's healthy and not abusing uh, power yes, kind so, of yes. position. But anyway, I think CPE would be something yeah. that could be very much utilized by your organization, just a thought. That's fantastic. Great. Thank you. Yeah. And any such ideas we'll consider yeah. very seriously and hopefully yeah. in- implement as the thing grows. Yeah, we Does want- anybody want to respond to that before the next person asks well, a question? Well, that's what... So these are the types of conversations that we've been having. And, you know, of course, when you start a new organization, one of the things that we were doing in the beginning is we're just trying to raise interest and raise awareness. But the thing that uh, Francis brought up is, is absolutely needed. You know, it's something that, say, as you know, someone who studies to become a, a psychotherapist or a counselor, you know, you, you have to train, you have to learn how to work with people. And one of, the, one of the great things that we, we see in this community, especially the non-dual community, is people wake up and then there's this assumption that somehow they know how to work mm. with mm. trauma, mm. you know, with people's suffering. They know how to work with, with every relationship experience possible. They know and how give to financial to advice. give financial advice. <laughs> Uh, you know, they know what's right and, you know, who I should be dating and, you know, this, this type of thing. And it's, it's completely outrageous to, to have that ex- expectation, one, as a, as a teacher or two, as a community, to assume that that individual knows those things. And so that this is why it, it's, it's helpful, you know, in a sense to be educated, have some type of education you know, to learn things like what Francis is bringing up, boundaries. There's so many communities that if they just simply understood how to work with boundaries, how to work with power, there'd be no problem. Yeah. But just to have that thing sit in the shadow and then come forward and turn into this tragic mess, again, is, is unnecessary. And so I think it's, it's absolutely yes. a necessary component. It's one of the things we're beginning to... 
uh, to work with Mariana Kaplan to, to start to develop these types of things mm -hmm. and, and, um, and other teachers, other groups. Yeah, and I think it's important that, you know, that what, what we can add to the community is educational. And I love that idea, Frank, because there's resources that are all, have already have a wealth of experience behind them, and we can put in links and add that too as a resource. I love it. Our problem is that we, we have a culture of people who are teachers who don't think they need to be educated. That's the problem. We can provide all of this, but until students say, hey, what are you doing to maintain your own growth as a person? I would love to give more power to the students where they can you know, feel that their own autonomy to ask for better standards of their teachers could come into play. So to shift the power back to students so that education is revisited again by the teacher so that they can embrace that being human means being open to educating and improving yourself as a human being. In traditions I'm aware of, some kind of ethical or moral development is, is considered a critical part of the path. Like in Patanjali, for instance, you have the yamas and niyamas, and, you know, non-violence and non-covetousness and all sorts of things like that. And I'm sure in Buddhism there's something similar, and hopefully in, in Christianity. I'm not as familiar with those traditions, but, you know, Francis could tell us about that. But um, I don't know if that, that's kind of been bypassed, I think, in our contemporary spiritual culture. People just get up and start doing satsangs. And, yeah. and obviously people can only act according to their level of consciousness. It's not a new idea to have some sort of ethical training or attention on those, those kinds of things on the spiritual path. And we're a little bit kind of behind the, the times in yeah. not introducing it. Yeah. Next question. Thank you very much for this work. It's hugely important. And I'd also like to say that there's a difference between New Ageism and spirituality. And there's a significant difference. And anybody that tries to put me in a New Age category, I deject it. <laughs> um, the other thing I want to say is it's a group that may have gotten it correct. I was just recently teaching at Kripalu. And I don't know if anybody followed that story, but it's kind of interesting. I interviewed Yogi um, Amar Desai, and we, I brought up the point and everything. And Yeah, go ahead and elaborate. So, you know, there was a lawsuit after the, the whole thing fell. And, you know, there were many wrongdoings that had gone on there. But the lawsuit was essentially, and the, the people won, had $50 million to then do a sort of rehabilitation and therapy for people that had been wrongly hurt in, in that environment. So it was an interesting sort of twist on so many things had gone wrong for them to have taken the money to, to attempt to do something right. So just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, one of the advisors who, uh, who helped create healing within the community, Mariana Copeland, she's, she's working with us. And so these are the types of resources we're reaching out for and uh, we're welcoming because that is, that's a, that's a prime example of how it went. It went really bad. And then as a community, they healed. And so again, that's, that's beautiful to see that, that we're, we're admitting we're human, we're willing to grow, we're willing to do our work. That's, see, that's a beautiful thing. And then again, to even take it a step back, if we do our work first, yes. <laughs> that it's we don't have to experience the train wreck and the whole that's community it. doesn't have to experience yeah. the, the fallout. And so, you know, this is, a, it, and again, it's an invitation. It's not like, 
you know, everything is going to be healed, and, you know, from 2018 going forward. It's, it's going to be this work in progress. And Patanjali says, Heyam dukkam anagatam, avert the danger which has not yet come. And, you know, yeah. Benjamin Franklin, when a stitch in time saves nine, it's better to nip these things in the bud than have to spend $50 million cleaning up the mess. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Hi there. Thank you so much for doing this uh, and for putting this organization together. I truly appreciate it. My name is Wendy Coulter. I teach medical intuition to healthcare professionals, most of them licensed. So you can imagine the ethical issues that are brought up in that. And what I do, and this may be a resource for you, is I've partnered with a woman named Midge Murphy, who is an attorney and also an energy healer. And she's written a book for energy healers, uh, but for teachers like myself, uh, it is now a component in my program. People have to pass her exam, and it's comprehensive. So I would bring her name up to you as someone to reach out to. She's brilliant. She's also working with ASEP and a few other organizations for this knowledge and, and uh, study. Thank you. Thank you Mention Cedar Barstow. Yes. Mention that. Cedar Barstow has been working around the right use of power in, in, in many different areas. She has recently, as the point was made earlier, we're late in the game addressing ethics in spirituality. She, in the last two or three years, has started to work with Zen communities. And we are at the APST offering free webinars once a month, maybe even more frequently. We're not quite sure. It's all just making it up as we go along to see what works. And so the first Wednesday of December, anybody can come and participate in Cedar Barstow's uh, two-hour webinar through the APST site for free, where she talks about the right use of power, about the power differential between teachers and students, about how to honor that power differential but not to abuse it, and what happens in the dynamics. So it's a totally passing of skills. She's very practical, and that's her area of expertise. So we need to pull in expertise because it's not in the spiritual sector, but it's already been developed in the other sectors, and that's what we need to learn from rather than reinvent the wheel ourselves, you know? Well, and one of the great shadows is that, that it's assumed in the spiritual sector. It is. And that's Absolutely. where so many teachers and so many lineages, we find ourselves in trouble, is that there's this great assumption that enlightenment equals this, or because someone's sitting in the chair above others, that means they know, you know some great thing about everything, and there's, there's just trouble there. We have a stack of cards here, which we'll distribute later, which have the website on it for this organization. Hi there. I know you're in the earlier stages of this wonderful project. And so what I, I know what I'm asking is kind of a tall order. Have you had any conversations about institutionalized sexism? Because, um, pardon me, because I think when you have organizations where it's all men in the positions of power, it's, it's inherently corrupt and I, I didn't know if you had any conversations around that. Thank well, you. Firstly, it was intentional that we had an equal balance of genders here Thank on you. the stage. Yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> but you know, yeah, Caverly, Caverly actually probably brought that into that the question. conversation earlier in the year. Hmm. Well, address your question. Um, You know, the, the thing that's arising for me, and it isn't lost on me that so far we've had so many women ask questions. It's nice to see some uh, women's voices come into this room. 
One of the things that uh, interests me so much about this um, conversation is because there's so many people here deeply dedicated to a spiritual path, it's interesting to me that in the tradition I was raised in, guidelines, vows were imposed as ways that your ego was revealed as you ran up against them. And I think that we're in a we're in an era where um, folks are learning so much more about um, about who they authentically are, and the the guidelines. Um, might be helpful along the way as um, places to reference, but that the same power dynamic that actually keeps an ego in place um, uh, seems less um, useful um, to me. And I know I'm not specifically speaking to sexism yet, um, I'm, I'm going to pass it. I'm going to pass it back to you. Um, I'm, I'm afraid I'll be too long-winded if I yeah. continue with the with the. One little thing I, I just want to pop in here, and then more from others, is that at BatGap we have a, a very intentional policy of inviting an equal number of men and women to be interviewed. Maybe it wasn't that way over the entire course of the project over nine years, but these days it's like, okay, December's coming up, two men, two women. And, um, and if it gets imbalanced one month, we try to compensate for it the next month. I think it's rampant in the community, and I mean, one of the things that we see is, you know, the, the people who are tending to cause the abuse, create the abuse, they tend to be men, <laughs> you know, more often than not, and it's, it's unfortunate, and so I think it's really beautiful what's coming forward in the collective consciousness, you know, from the, from the Me Too movement, we, we can learn a lot, but again, we want to move into a place that's beyond just the the shocking exposure of this happened and this happened and this happened to say, okay, now let's take a step back. Let's take some accountability. You know, who has a willingness to look at their shadow? And to me, that's, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road and that's where the real conversation is. But it's, it's absolutely necessary what you're saying to, in, to investigate all these. Yeah, it, seem, it seems to me that we're, we're in a place where we're trying to bring attention to the structures that are in place because we can't, we've, we can't just address the individual without also addressing the societal structures at the same time. The reason this feels like such a long-winded topic for me is, is because there's so many, there's so many ways in which um, the abuses of power have been a mis, misuse of those guidelines that I think originally were created to support us in um, living our, uh, from, from the recognition of who we authentically are. That within the power dynamics of sexism, within the power dynamics of the patriarchy, the guidelines and the rules have gotten usurped by a conditioned view of power structure that isn't in alignment with our greatest understanding and, and recognition of who we authentically are. So that if we don't address the context in which these things are arising, if we're not naming the, the power dynamics in the, con, in the context in which they're arising, then we can be confused that it can all just be addressed internally without seeing the linkage between our personal conditioning and our collective conditioning. 
Does that make more sense? I felt um, I felt a little rambly about it, but um, it's a it's a topic that's um, close to my heart because I think something we all have in common is what are the ways that we can support um, moving beyond the breaches in the recognition of our shared being, not from uh, guidelines coming out and in and constraining feeding uh, the mind of duality, really, feeding the idea that there's someone who's done something wrong and now they need to be punished, but, but more from how to support um, having mirrors, for example, that allow us to just see, okay, here's my internal con- conditioning. I mean, being raised in a Zen monastery, I had mirrors around me all the time, um, for better and worse. And collectively in our spiritual communities, I see the benefit of having such mirrors, mirroring our systems of patriarchy, mirroring, mirroring the ways in which um, I have so many people who come to me to um, try to, as Craig said, unwind the trauma that they've experienced by being in communities where they were sexually abused um, by a teacher, for example. So I'm... I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in guidelines that support the remembrance of who we are and the collective um, support for each other of manifesting the recognition of that remembrance, having our actions be on behalf of that remembrance rather than guidelines that feed the idea of right and wrong and, and good and bad. And I think the key word there is, is, is guidelines. You know, like these are guidelines, they're things we're working with, they're things we, we should struggle with, we should deeply investigate. Not that this is a rule and I broke it and therefore I'm bad. And I think that's a, that's, there's a real difference there. Yeah. In fact, last, there are certain issues that we've been debating all year and still haven't come into agreement on. Um, and uh, this will probably go on perpetually. But last night we spent an hour um, discussing the issue of relationships. You know, it, when, if ever, is it appropriate for a student and teacher to enter into a romantic relationship if such a thing begins to kindle during a, a teaching situation? And we talked about it for about an hour, and I think we're going to patch that video onto the end of this one, and I'll put it up on BatGap if you want to see it. I'm just saying that to sort of emphasize the point that we haven't come down off Mount Sinai with anything cut in stone, you know? I mean, this has got to be a work in progress, and we, we intend to remain fluid and malleable and, and open-minded and just keep feel, thinking and feeling into it as we go along. And when I say we, I don't mean just we four. I mean we. Mm-hmm. Next question. Hi. My name is Atul Mehra, and I'm from Canada. I'm a psychotherapist. We have one of the very... A strong thing which call it Seuss self and effective use of self. So we have, you know, continuous uh, supervisions to understand the challenges we are going through so that the transfer and counter transference is not going to take place. I have been working with clients now more than 20 years and I've seen from simple anxiety to schizophrenia and of course, you know, I have been very successful more than 90% where the sexual abuse has been there. So today I want to bring something new, like you were saying, the mirrors, you know. Um, So first part is that we need to train, we need to have a continuous supervision on the therapist. First he needs to address his own challenges. Let us say my 
I, in order to put my curtain on the wall, I had to go whole life therapy process, which took 207 hours of sessions, four years. And I went through all the challenges which I felt, which I saw, which I lived with my mom, dad, etc. So that when the, when the times came, when the client fell in love with me and said she wants to marry me, so if I reject her, so I will be rejecting the attractive sexual being and I'm hurting. So very politely, I moved her away and say, okay, let's thank you for this honor. Let us finish your therapy and we talk about it. And she agreed and things got settled. But now here comes the second part, which is from victim point of view. And here I want to bring something new to your attention. I don't think it has ever been discussed before. Uh, and that's definitely my topic of tomorrow, which is the spirituality of a trauma. So I know that sexual abuse is bad. It should not happen. But nevertheless, we can't stop it. It's going to happen. But now the question is, do my client need to keep on living with that victim mask? Because that is going to affect his life directly or indirectly, consciously or unconsciously. It's going to affect his relationship. Let us say if he's a, he's a girl, when she's going to get married, because I have lots and lots of more than 200, 300 cases I have attended in the last five years. So what I want to bring here, can we introduce a kind of therapeutic process where the person can understand his participation to bring that thing on her? What was that thing unconsciously inside her which attracted to bring that situation on her? Because there has been studies now by Dr. Vernon Meinhold in Germany, and we have discovered, we have and proved that every fatal accident is an unconscious form of committing suicide. So how much we are open to work with our unconscious mind so that I can understand my participation, what was that deep desire inside me which took me to bring that predator on me so I have my responsibility, other person has his responsibility, and it's a 50-50, and it just disappears. Mm. Subconscious closes it, mm. and now I can live my life completely mm. with 100% availability of that energy which was hiding me or stopping mm. me before. Thank you. I think that's something that I've worked with uh, numerous times with clients, is, is you look at the, the dual responsibility. In fact, you, you know, within our own organization, uh, Jack was very instrumental in, in, in creating the guidelines for teachers. And one of the things that I, I thought of was, was it would be good to have guidelines for students as well so that there is that dual responsibility. And see, w when we have dual responsibility, then everyone becomes empowered. And then we're not playing that, that victim, offender, or eternal victim, or the eternal offender paradigm is that we're, we're working with both and see then at there is both as we're all on the path and we're all growing together and we're having this experience that uh, that this this lady was bringing up where the community grows as a culture we grow and I think that there's there's such a power in that you know one of the the great things that happened with me early on when I was teaching is is there was I had very much of my life was, was still quite messy. And I had some individuals, one of them's actually seated here in the front row, who brought me aside and said, Craig, you know, you need to take responsibility for this. 
and that willingness, you know, for me to listen, for her to step forward, you know, for the, for the two of us, you know, to switch roles as student and teacher and, and just to see that we're here together, we're growing together. And it, it's, it's that kind of power where the students rise up and say, yes, we want this. Like Jack was saying, yes, we're demanding this. And yes, we're going to pull you aside and say, hey, no more of the monkey business. You know, you need to go to therapy, you know, Mr. or Mrs., you know, Guruji. I think this is a, it's a, it's a powerful thing. And then it, it leaves the individual not in a state of trauma, but in a state of empowerment. And the, the world grows. Is a great point you brought up. I think another point in this particular discussion is that a lot of teachers are teaching before they're ready. I got a shock about six months ago when I realized teachers don't even know what transcending desire is. They haven't even gone there. So they don't even know that this natural pull of sexual attraction is going on. They're not even that self-aware. They've seen the truth with their life and their own personal consciousness. They've done minimal therapy. They have no sense of being responsible for their own crap. They project it on somebody else and they use non-dual language in order to camouflage the whole mess and continue to abuse. They're teaching and they're immature. You know? Premature immaculation, it's called. Uh, <laughs> um. The next governor of California's wife, Jennifer Newsom, uh, is doing some beautiful work. She explained to us that uh, men in this culture uh, have half of their being cut off. And hearing it from her, I felt my own pain for that. And from the pain, I could hear that women have half their being cut off. And when they try to manifest it, our culture and I judge them as angry. And after feeling my own pain, I could hear their pain underneath their anger. And so I wasn't turned away by it. I could enter it and listen. Van Jones says common pain is common cause. And uh, I've been apologizing in some groups for my own behavior. And I'm very sorry for what I have done. And I hope that I will be healing now for seven generations back and seven generations forward. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank, well, you. Thank you. Thank you for speaking up. Hi, I'm Lissa. I'm in an interesting situation because I come from a medical background as a medical doctor where, you know, we had boards and licenses. And if there were perceived ethics breaches, there was a whole system in place. And now I'm sort of in the spiritual teaching world where I'm surrounded by people who are not licensed <laughs> And I'm witnessing just blatant, basic violations mm -hmm. of what every doctor and therapist would know is an ethics breach. And my question is, like, I'm, I'm in a group of 200 people who are best-selling authors and spiritual teachers, and I would say 95% of them are breaching ethics. Mm -hmm. And the question becomes, if you're in a situation like that, and what I find is that when I challenge people, colleague to colleague... Yes then there is just 
first of all, I get ignored. They literally act like I didn't even say anything. And then when I refuse to be ignored and I press, then there's defensiveness. And if I continue to like sort of bring Kali energy of like, no, this is not okay, then things get extremely heated. This blew up at one point because one of the members of one of these groups had just gotten out of jail for just murder, basically, involuntary manslaughter. So the whole community was sort of up in arms over, what do we do with this? And there was a lot of emotion because the colleagues had been calling this malignant narcissistic part in this person out, and nothing was happening. There was no way to follow-up. So, for example, I could decide I'm a whistleblower and I could write on my blog and send out to 100,000 people a list of, you know, 30 people that I could name a list of grievances just so at least people who are following these people know. But I don't feel like that's my role. So instead I'm going direct and challenging these people and trying to find a way that how do we do this where there's possibility for redemption and atonement. Like, I love what you said. Like, how do we give the people who are in those situations a way to say, wow, I didn't know better, and now I want to do better, and what do I do? How do I make apologies and make amends and atone for this so that I can actually... Uh, evolve and grow from this. And I'm watching slim examples of that, but they're slim. And so I would love to hear what you all have to say about that. That's a big one. (laughs) And uh, we've talked about it a little bit, and we've, I think we've felt at this stage anyway that we uh, were not yet at a a place where we could be some kind of sounding board, and it would have to be more than just we, um, to... Air to, to hear grievances and take some sort of action on such grievances, but it's something that somehow has to be dealt with. I mean, in, in my capacity doing my interviews, very often things will come to my attention about this, that, or the other teacher, and in some cases they've been extremely egregious, and, and usually the people who bring them to my attention say, please don't name me or tell the person who I am or in some cases even tell them what I said because they'll know who I am. So I'm kind of caught in the middle and and usually left with the decision of whether to just take the interview down quietly, which is usually how I do it, just it disappears. And then then people immediately start asking me, well, why did you take it down? And I can't tell them because I'm not supposed to divulge my my source. And so it's, it's a screwy thing. And I wish there could be a lot more directness and healthy confrontation, doesn't have to be antagonistic. It's something that definitely needs to be worked on and we're not, we haven't worked it out. One of the things that, that came up with, with our support system at the APSD is, is I was having this, this conversation with Suzanne and she was saying, it'd be great, yes, to have a grievance board. And I said, well, you know, it'd be great if we weren't the grievance board because the grievance board need, needs to be created by, by professionals and we need to be accountable to it as well. So it's not that we are the judges, but that the grievance board is, is handling that type of thing. And so that may be down the road, but in this moment what we're trying to create is education Again, to, to change the community, to, to make it you know, hip to say, oh yeah, I have a shadow and I'm willing to look at it and I fell on my face, not you know, I'm the perfected Guruji who's this level of enlightenment or what, whatever. I mean, let me just t- tell you a quick anecdote. I, there was somebody whom I had interviewed and I ended up taking down his interviews and, uh, because I was starting to get all this feedback and, and I and I think Craig was involved and a few others actually engaged this person in 
quite a lot of email conversation, trying to just sort of work it out with him, you know, and 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 all, and he would write back these like three thousand word diatribes that I, my eyes would glaze over in the minute I saw them come into my inbox. But finally, in one such long thing, he he actually said, "I'm perfectly pure and beyond the need for criticism, and you're wasting my time." So that was the end of that. Yeah, I think though there is space for an in-between uh, support system. Mm-hmm. If there is a shift in the culture whereby we could perhaps offer something like a body system, where another teacher could confidentially support a teacher who's saying, I screwed up and I'm not comfortable being vulnerable, but somewhere I've got to process this and I don't want to go to therapist and I don't want, I don't want, I don't want. But if we could offer something, hey, this is peer support, it's okay. I'm doing the same thing as you're doing, checking to see where's my shadow. And if we can offer that for each other, and there be safe peer support, where, where you know, so many teachers say, but I can't go to a therapist because they don't understand me. It's like, ah, bullshit, go to another teacher, we understand. You know, we, 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 we have the same process, we've had the same perspective of awakening and deeper. So the place to hide because they are awake is gone. But what isn't there is the structure in order to hold a teacher who is at that point of admitting their own internal pain. I think that's something we can do. Yeah, and Jack, it seems to me that with that, you're, you're talking about moving away from a culture of competition and moving yes. towards a culture of cooperation. Yes. Again, that's something that I think is interesting to me about what you all have started. Is it's, I've, I've, I've projected that at the heart of it is cooperation rather, rather yes. than competition. The heart of it is support and shared accountability yes. and not accountability in terms of like pointing, calling out, but a calling in. Yes. Um, as we, yes. as we, and that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That actually leads to my question beautifully. Thank you, um, Craig. I was very interested when you mentioned the woman in the front being a student who came to you, and I'm really curious what was it about that inquiry that she brought that supported you opening to that rather than shutting it off. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the big thing is, is not only was she a student, but she was also my good friend. And it's one of the things that I've had as a teacher is I've never been able to pull off the I'm the guru and I know something that you don't. So I wasn't able ever to sit on that platform. In fact, to me, that platform feels disgusting to me. I don't like to have you know, th- those types of uh, this hierarchical structures. And I think that's one of the things that's beginning to die you know, within the community, even though it's been around for thousands of years, is we're, we're, we're finding that. You know, even in a place like Sand, you can just walk up to any teacher and start a conversation. And to have that, that willingness to listen, to connect, to not see yourself as, you know, the great authority on everything, you know, to me it all comes down to humility. Mm. You know, with humility, there's a willingness to listen, there's a willingness to hear, and, you know, I can even say, um, you know, she came to me a couple times, you know, so she, she kept nudging me. And, and it, that's helpful. It's helpful for students to come forward and say, hey, you think there's a little something here? Oh, no, no, it's cool, you know. It's like, no, it's, it's not really cool. And to really push it a little and for students to be empowered in that way, to me, is, is crucial. And then, of course, the teacher has to be willing to listen. 
You know, one of the great things my teacher told me is, Craig, you must always have humility in your back pocket. You know, you must have it there. If it's not, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. Tremendous trouble. I corrected Craig on something just last night. He was snoring. (laughs) (laughs) This hasn't been, like, explicitly stated, but I can feel that as a person who benefited from the teacher-student role that was a giant projection, and I actually benefited from the trust that I projected onto that teacher. Um, Jack saying, I want to tear it down. There's, there was a part in myself that was like, oh, but then as I sit here, I can also feel the parts of me that have challenged those you know, friend teachers and other teachers I can think of, even publicly in their retreats, like very viscerally, and I can feel the um, expansiveness of what you're bringing and what this conversation is, is an opportunity for a deeper student-teacher relationship and a more, a deeper awakening and a deeper human co-collective experience. It just feels so obvious to me that this is a, a paradigm shift that is scary at first. It's like, and it can be used to I could see potentially, like, you, you know, this teacher, this, and there's such uh, misunderstandings and teachers saying things and then being mis, you know, I could see that overly being. Yeah. But the, the, co, the co-conversation just feels so important, and I can feel how those teachers that I have um, unabashedly felt tr- I could trust in saying, dude, you, you really hurt me there, or that was not cool, that really felt like something, and they have stood in their beloved strength of 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 um not feeling ashamed but feeling willing to meet me there i mean good god the uh, the ability and the amazing um like wondrous expansion that has come from that like oh there's another human teacher trustworthy being that can have this conversation it just feels so healthy and expansive so i'm happy about that. just as the mic is going over There has to be some, um, in some situations, there is that uh, power differential. Of course, when you're surrendering, we project it onto a teacher. Some of us, it really works for that. I did that also, and it really worked because I had a clean teacher. If the teacher identifies with the role, we're in trouble. If the teacher doesn't identify with the role, it's not a problem. It's that simple. But it's about the teacher not being screwed up, not the methodology. You see, it's about the abuse of power that's inherent. The teacher either hides behind the role or they just see that, that the, you know, the, the devotion that's coming from a student is about the student. It's not about them, you know? If they do identify, it, it, there's a snowball effect in which the ego gets more and more aggrandized, you know, as they go along. That's rocking. Yeah. 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 Um, thank you for this conversation. Um, I was thinking, reflecting on what Jack was saying, and I just, the words truth and reconciliation from South Africa just keep coming back. That model in which it was a systemic racism that affected not just individuals, but it was the whole community. And here we have um, systems of power, especially through patriarchy, where when, especially men, are taught that this is their their birthright, their entitlement to exercise forms of power and ownership. And they're doing the right thing in terms of how they've been conditioned. And so I can understand and be compassionate when there is an awareness and an understanding like, oh, I, you know, to metabolize 
thousands of years of training on so many infinite levels that teaches someone to be in that position of taking advantage of power. That's doing it right on many levels. And so I'm hoping with things like this that someone studies the model of truth and reconciliation as happened after apartheid, in which there was an opportunity for both parties to express and fully understand the mutual harm that came about from the kind of ignorances that everyone was suffering under, not just those who were like viscerally and directly harmed, but the harm that came in the process of harming someone else. And I can imagine, and I'm thankful for the gentleman who stood up, that there are many of us who would, who long for an opportunity to heal those parts of ourselves in which we have perpetrated harm and uh, an opportunity perhaps, you know, to, to have a truth and reconciliation, mutual understanding that protects privacy and doesn't re-traumatize, but gives an opportunity for that kind of mutual healing. Yeah, and it seems that that can only happen in an environment of cooperation and yes. care and yes. shared understanding of mutual uh, the deepest truth we know. Well, this has been really gratifying. I'm, I think we're all like really thrilled by the input we've heard from all of you. Yeah. And there's still a very fledgling effort here, and, and we hope to have it grow in a, a very wholesome way, and that will necessitate the participation of anyone who feels inspired to participate. So there are little cards up here. You feel free to take a card and that'll remind you of what the website is. And we'll be putting this whole conversation up. I think probably Sand will have it up on their YouTube and I'll have it up on BatGap and, and also even last night's discussion that we had will tie into it. So if this in whole thing has been meaningful to you, please stay tuned and stay in touch and, and, and stay be, involved. And be a part of it. Yeah. Be, a part of, be a part of the conversation. Yeah, be a part it, of it. It grows through you. It grows through yeah. all of us. That's what we're inviting is. We're inviting this, this to be the birth of, of something that's, that's really helpful. All right. Well, thank you very much. And um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be seeing you around. We're out in uh, San Jose, California, in the home of some friends at the moment. But the reason the four of us are sitting here is that tomorrow we're going to do a, a panel discussion at the Science and Non-Duality Conference. We wanted to generate some uh, video content for the Association of Professional Spiritual Teachers website, and so we thought we'd record something tonight. I may also add this to the Buddha at the Gas Pump uh, channel as an addendum to the video of the panel discussion we're going to do tomorrow. But since this, is, this may also be a standalone video on um, APST, the APST website, I should probably briefly introduce the people sitting here. My name is Rick Archer, and I was somewhat instrumental in the formation of APST, although not nearly as much as the woman to my left, Jack O'Keefe, who has really been the champion of this whole thing and has put in huge amounts of time and effort to bring it together. It wouldn't have happened without her. And Jack is a spiritual teacher. I think her bio, all of our bios are on APST. To her left is Craig Holliday, who is one of the original Three Musketeers of uh, you know, getting together the APST. And in, in the uh, panel discussion we'll do, we'll elaborate a little bit on how the whole thing was conceived. 
And to my right is Caverly Morgan, who is from the Portland area these days and has done some incredible work um, with teaching mindfulness in schools. Um, and you know, when the three of us thought who uh, we would like to have as a fourth for our panel, Caverly came to mind as someone who would be a perfect fit. So we're, we're really glad to have her here. In our, in our panel discussion tomorrow, we have quite a wide range of topics that we'd like to cover. And I'm speaking in the future tense, but by the time you watch this, you may have actually already watched the panel discussion. Some people, when they first hear about our efforts with this thing, they jump to the conclusion that it's going to be some moralistic, judgmental mm. thing where we're going to, um, where we consider ourselves qualified to pass judgment on teachers or, and their behavior and, and so on. And we, we just, we're going to emphasize from the outset and probably continue to emphasize that that's not our orientation and that we have a very, hopefully a very humble attitude toward this whole project. We all feel in our own ways that it's something that's very much needed in the spiritual community, that there have been far too many um, examples of teacher misbehavior which has caused a lot of pain and confusion and disillusionment uh, among students. And if we can contribute in any way to the elevation of understanding of what is or, or may or may not be appropriate behavior by a spiritual teacher, we feel we'll, we will have done something significant. But not only are we not adamant about many of the points that we're presenting, we, we feel the whole thing is fluid, a work in progress, something that we welcome and, and need the input and collaboration of the whole community in, um, because everyone else's judgment and opinion is as valuable as ours may be, and even amongst ourselves, our judgments differ. There have been certain points which we've been bantering back and forth all year and not reaching an agreement on. We haven't argued in a contentious way. It's been very friendly, but everyone has their subjective perspective. And, and in trying to formulate a code of ethics, we're trying to achieve a balance between our subjective perspectives and whatever universal standards there might be that fit our contemporary culture and ought to be respected. So one such example of something that we've had trouble reaching agreement on is the issue of relationships, romantic relationships or sexual relationships between teachers and students. And this is probably one of the most important points to consider because it's probably the area in which the most egregious violations have occurred, um, which have caused the most harm and confusion uh, among students and have gotten teachers in all kinds of hot water. So we've discussed among ourselves over the previous months, what would be an appropriate approach to this? How can you regulate such a thing? You know, should there never be any kind of um, romantic relationship between teachers and students? Or should there be a, a cooling off period in which the teacher-student relationship has ended, but the, the romantic relationship has not started for X number of months or years or whatever? And again, there's been a, a range of opinions on this, and we've sort of each shifted our positions and and discussed it back and forth. And we thought that with you in watching this video, we'd like to just do a little bit of that in real time mm -hmm. and explain some of the processes we've gone through. And then you may see even now 
that we, we're not in complete agreement. Um, but I think you'll also see that none of us is rigid or adamant in our opinions. We're sort of trying to approach this in a thoughtful and, and sensitive and introspective way and you know, to learn as we go and kind of search our own conscience and, and, and our own understanding as deep as it may go to come up with something that's really going to be useful and, and helpful for people. Yeah. Who would like to s take it from there? Okay, so I'd, I'd be happy to start. And so, you know, as far as if, if we're looking at the spectrum of teachers being able to fully be in a relationship with their students and teachers having zero relationship with their students romantically, you know, I'm in that, that very conservative camp of, of no relationship. Ever. And did you say ever? Ever. Well, that, you know, that's an interesting question, ever. Uh, of course, you know, as a human being, there's going to be exceptions to all kinds of rules, uh, to any rule. There's going to be uh, cultural exceptions. There's going to be uh, different organizations, uh, you know, that have learned how to do that beautifully. You know, like in the, the uh, Jewish uh, tradition of rabbis, and it's very common, you know, to have, uh, you know, the rabbi be married and have it to be someone from within the congregation, and that's, you know, of course, absolutely acceptable. Uh, but what, what I have done is, as a therapist, I've just taken the rules of, of traditional psychotherapists and the way you relate to, to clients is you don't, you, know, you don't become romantically involved. And the idea that, that is taught in graduate school is, is the idea is it's never. Now, if you look at the, you know, the exact codes and the rules, it's, this has gone over uh, many years of great debate. Uh, you know, it's, when I first uh, became a therapist, it was, I would have to wait two years from the last time I saw the client if I was wanting to date them. And so it just made it really simple that that would, probably wouldn't happen. You know, since then, it's been raised to five years, and I, I'm a, a fan of this approach. By the governing body that governs Yeah, therapists. by the governing body that... that, that uh, grants yeah, and revokes licenses. Grants and revokes licenses, okay. yes. And see, to me, it makes it really simple that as a spiritual teacher, you know, I'm here, I'm showing up as a servant for my students. I'm not here looking for a date. Uh, I'm not looking for someone to sleep with. I'm not mixing those two worlds. And it keeps things radically simple as a teacher. There's no... There's no messiness. And I can even say, you know, from a place of humility, when I first started teaching, you know, my life was, a, it was literally a train wreck. Like I had all kinds of busyness going on outside of my world of teaching. But what I found is, is because the relationships I, were, I was in were not fully stable, that that confusion bled into the world of teaching and so I would show up and I'd be a little bit confused or stressed or you know thinking about you know what had just happened with my partner you know at that time and it, it was a great distraction and so you know if when one has a conservative view you know it's like you take that confusion I mean I think we can all agree that relationships tend to be the most messy place in most of our lives, it tends to be that evolving edge. You know, I can see there's people, you know, in the room that are smiling. And when I say this, it tends to be where we struggle. 
And so it's nice if that struggle is not mixed with my teaching community, with the, with the Sangha. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's like, what are we here for? Are we here you know, to sit in meditation? Are we here to connect in the truth? Are we here to, you know, to, to step into these greater realms of consciousness? Or are we here you know, looking for a date? And there can be a lot of trouble you know, when we start to, start to mix those worlds. And I know, of course, it's not that simple, that sometimes, like as a therapist, you know, I may meet someone, I may find, oh, this person, they're, they're like my best friend. They're, they're coming to me, I see them fully, they see me fully. There's this connection that begins to form. There's this dynamic, I see their beauty and divinity, they see my beauty and divinity. And as a therapist, you could say, oh, well, this makes perfect sense that the two of us should now be in intimate relationship. But as soon as we start going in that direction, you know, all this potential for, for growth and vulnerability and, and a sense of you know, having a, a clean and clear, safe place, you know, all of that really quickly begins to crumble when those boundaries are crossed. And so, to me, it's a very simple thing to say, I don't cross that line, and it keeps my teaching community fairly safe from my, mm-hmm. from my desire. And if my students know this as well, and they say, okay, then I, I'm not going to cross that line with Craig, and then it keeps, it, at least it keeps that realm intentionally safe. It keeps it safe. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes your spiritual path commands you Absolutely. to break your golden rule. Absolutely. Because it will destroy the controller. It will make you fly in the face of what you believed to be a moral high value. And there is such divine efficiency when our spiritual path just says, oh, you think you like this? Okay, let's turn you upside down and we'll make you be the opposite of who you thought you were. Can you and give us an of example of... Oh, gosh, some of like us that. have had that path. I certainly have, have had that path when I was doing my spiritual practice. Whatever I, I held to be a clear value of, like, I would never do that. It's like, oh, my God, I, I have to do it. I have to do it. I have to do it. So I remember, you know, there was this golden rule with my first husband. Absolutely. Absolutely. The one thing we will always keep sacred is being loyal to each other. And I knew at some point, like, Spiritually, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to leave him. I, I, know, I know I will have to choose God because I, I'm attached to him, so I'll have to choose God. And at a retreat, it was like, I'm going to, I'm going, this is where it's going to happen. This is how my marriage is going to break up. I'm going to be disloyal to this person, to, to my husband, with this person. I don't know how this is going to happen, but this is how it's going to unfold to get me out of the marriage. So every value system I had had to be destroyed in that process also. And divine efficiency unfolds like that sometimes. And so, yeah, I mean, I was just in tears, taking off my wedding ring, thinking this is horrendous. I feel like 35-year-old virgin. Like, it was just so nervous, so awful, but I have to do this. I, I, I have to do this and destroy everything that I held as sacred. Now, of course, I was on a retreat as a student, and he was another student. But I can see that same energy of divine compulsion pushing through 
in other people's lives. And sometimes it happens to a teacher also, where they're like, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how we're going to get from teacher-student to being two equal adults who are consenting to be together sexually. How are we going to get from here to there? And that's what I'd like the APST to do, is like, how do we map that journey? How do we guide others through that journey? Thankfully, I had a milder version because I was a student and he was a student. It only broke my own marital vows. But when there's a teacher and a student, sometimes it works like this. And to say, you know, that consciousness will never, you know, make us break a rule like this. It's like, you know, as soon as you think consciousness won't work like that, consciousness will come up and say, huh, you think you know how I work? Try this one. And that's what happens. So, so I would like us to find a way to navigate in those rare exceptions. And also for, for you know, our community to know the difference between what Craig is talking about. It's like, just know when there's desire and, and K-N-O-W, when there is desire. And that's when you take the higher ground and don't follow desire. Well, and there's, and there's a know? radical difference between a rare exception and you know, yeah. a desire. You know, yeah. There's a difference between me sleeping with yeah. you know, 35 women yeah. in, in my sangha yes. and, you know, and the coming, coming to a point of, okay, yeah. it's one relationship, we moved on into you know, yeah. a deep level of commitment. Yeah. You know, but, I, but I think what, what I see more often than not as, as a therapist is I see train wreck after train wreck after yeah. train wreck and hear these horrific yeah. stories. Yeah. And so... You know, in you know, I I'm willing to put my you know my votes or my sense of you know how do we go forward? I'd rather protect students than and protect teachers and the path of teachers and you know what yeah. you know a teacher thinks that they're going through and they need to do with this one particular student. I would much rather protect the thousand and one students than worry about the one in a thousand teachers who <laughs> who needs to feel like they need to be married to this person or sleep with this person or invite this person back to their room to look at their special spiritual books. Yeah, and next thing, <laughs> thing. So we're going to have tantric sex and all become enlightened. And so yeah, it's a new vibration be, and all this garbage. Yeah, yeah I'll, raise, I'll raise your vibration, you know, with yeah. my lingam or whatever yeah. silly, kind of, silly kind of conversation we're going to have. And, and I've heard these stories and, and to see... You know the tremendous lifelong pain. You know that that an mm. individual has, mm, sure. has been open mm-hmm. and vulnerable sure. with the teacher, mm. and then left the path for ten years or fifteen years or twenty years because of the tremendous mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know violation of trust that has happened. Mm. And so I heard of a woman who committed suicide mm-hmm. because of a violation of trust, and it wasn't even that um, overt. Um, a situation. It was more like she just got so disillusioned by the behavior. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even overtly sexual, but it was it was wanting to go in that direction, and it shattered mm-hmm. her, her ideal vision of this person who's a well-known mm-hmm. and highly respected mm-hmm. spiritual mm-hmm. teacher, now deceased. But before we get to Caverly, your statement confused me a little bit, and it opens up a, a, a possible alibi for um, people mm. doing whatever they want because they feel like yeah, I need there's to, this karmic cosmic to, thing just driving yeah. me and I have no choice about it and I realize it goes against all the conventions but the devil made me do it so yeah you know. uh, yeah I, I hadn't finished it okay. so so the, the 
I think the point and the, the, the gift that we can open together and share together and grow together on the APST is that what's the level of maturity of the teacher? So if the teacher has their own needs, if they haven't transcended desire, if their own loneliness, their own shadow has not been explored at all, they will project this into their sangha. And then this is when the teacher will use any bullshit concept in order to justify their behavior. That stinks. That stinks. And that's the teacher not doing the work for themselves. But there are times when there is a mature objective scenario that is a rare exception and I would like teachers to know the difference for teachers to educate themselves is it my shadow what's going on here or is this actually divine will in somehow and how can I safely navigate if it's divine will that's the area that's not known mm. that teachers don't know the difference of when it's their own shadow and when there is absolutely a divine intervention moving them in a certain way. That's a tricky one. That's the <laughs> tricky one. And that's the immaturity that I want the APST to address through education. Let's, let's mature the sector so that there is more autonomy and transparency in how we work. And even, you know? even bringing the conversation into the light, I think, is, is greatly helpful because what the, the reason that this has gone on you know, for you know, it's probably a, a couple thousand years now is that this is, it's hung out in the shadows. And so the willingness to have this conversation, to talk about it, you know, to, to bring up, you know, these, the rare exceptions and to bring up yeah. when it's inappropriate, yeah. I think is a, is a helpful conversation. And, yeah. and, you know, I could stand here and say, oh, it is never, you know, appropriate yeah. ever. And of course, you know, I'm not... That's going to uh, make not, it go underground, well, you see? That's yeah. going to make... That's, and that's... Yeah, that's, and, that's and to There's be no honest, I'm not, there. There's know, no I'm learning not, there. I'm not wired in that way to, to yeah. hold that kind of stance. But there yeah. is, you know, just a real sense of, of you know, what, what are normal expectations? If a, if a student comes sure. to a sangha and, you know, the, yeah. the teacher is, you know, it's a male teacher and he's only answering questions with the beautiful young ladies. And, you know, afterwards he's inviting them to all hang out with him at the, the secret teaching after party. It's like, come on, like this yep. is... And it happens. And we, we laugh, but it, it, happens. Yeah, it happens. And, it's, yeah. and it's, it happens again and mm -hmm. again. And it happens with, with well-known teachers, yeah. not-known teachers. Yeah. It happens yeah. with, with mm -hmm. Catholic priests and monks. And it's, yeah. it's, it's across the board. And it's, yeah. it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. I want to give Carolee a yeah. chance to speak. Yeah. And I just want to interject one really quick thing before I give you a Please. chance to speak. Which is that one thing that's very confusing is that a teacher can be radiating like a lighthouse. And appear to, appear to have an incredibly high level of consciousness, have you know tremendous charisma and powerful darshan and all that other stuff, and yet still have major unexamined shadow yes. areas and undeveloped Absolutely. aspects yes. of the personality, immaturities, and so on yes. that makes them act in ways that seem so completely incongruous with yes. their apparent enlightenment that yeah. it can be extremely confusing. And yeah. sometimes they act out those shadow things in secret uh, behind closed doors yeah. while publicly portraying an aura of saintliness and perfection. Yeah. Caverly. <laughs> well. <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, one, one thing that's, yes, I have, I have witnessed that that is the case. But something that's interested me about the conversation you all have been having is 
um, the building of accountability and transparency. So um, I think a lot of uh, what we're witnessing these days is um, scandal that's happening when there's a teacher, often male, um, at the top of a pyramid and is untouchable based on not having models of shared accountability within larger communities. So there's sort of an island effect that can happen. And I saw um, recently one case, and I'm sure there's more than one, but I'm just present to this one, where um, even after a, a sexual scandal comes to light, this person still, they've become an island unto themselves and can continue to teach even though the board of directors has left them, their, you know, their own community has fallen apart. Um, and, and so I think it seems to me from the little bit I've gotten to learn about how this has formed is that what's powerful about it is that um, there's, there's not, if, if, if one's signing on to be part of this shared accountability learning together process, it's, it's no longer possible to live in that kind of isolation. Yeah. And isolation can be very dangerous for the teacher and for the students. I mean, I, I know one case of a, a very popular teacher who just shut down constructive criticism. If, if anybody offered any, they were sent packing. Mm-hmm. And and he just kind of got more and more off into bizarro land, uh, mm-hmm. you know, of strange thinking with no crit- critical feedback. No whatsoever. mirror. No mirror. No mirror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the beautiful things that happened with me early on is, uh, you know, when my life was, you know, very much what what I call in in, the, in train wreck land. Uh, because uh, well, because I was young and, and uh, many of my students were also my friends, you know, they sat me down and they said, Craig, you know, things are like, you, we really love, you know, when you're up there teaching and we have a wonderful time in your class, but, you know, you, these things are incongruent is basically what they said. Yeah. And, you, you know, I can remember, like, they, they kind of harassed, I call it harassment, they harassed me a little bit and I defended myself a little bit. But I, but I realized, I was like, you know what, you guys are right. And it was, it was really helpful that my students came forward and, and they said this to me. And they looked me d- directly in the eye and they said, you got to clean your life up, Craig. And, and it, it really touched me. And mm. it, was, it was radically helpful mm. for them to come forward mm. and, and speak to me. And it was funny because mm. uh, I was talking with one of them today and, and there was this third person who came up and they said, well, Craig, how's your life going? Because the last time I talked to this person was, you know, maybe eight years ago, and it was when my life was pretty messy. And, you know, the, the, the good friend of mine said, oh, his life's actually really wonderful, and it's really clear, and it's simple, and things yes. have calmed down, and there's peace there, and there's freedom there. Mm-hmm. And it's supportive of the teaching, it's supportive mm-hmm. of the community, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a wonderful thing not to be involved in this train wreck, and it's a wonderful thing to have students that will come forward and speak to you and say, hey, you know, maybe you need to look at this. And I think this is a really valuable thing that, that as a teacher to be, to be radically open to feedback, mm-hmm. to criticism, yeah. to, uh, you know, to just constructive feedback is yeah. really helpful. And if we're looking at, well, what does it mean to be free and human? 
okay, so I'm open, you know, I'm willing to hear, I'm willing to listen, I'm mm -hmm. willing to grow. There's humility there. These are things that make, yeah. you, you know, it makes a very supportive community. But if we play this other game, like Caverly was describing, where it's, you know, it's a person and they're on, they're on their own island, they're untouchable, mm -hmm. you can't give feedback to the mm -hmm. teacher. There's this, you know, inner circle of students defending the guru and not letting you speak with him or her. And that's, that, that can lead to a very mm -hmm. neurotic uh, you know, community, and, and oftentimes we, we see that. Those tend to be the communities mm -hmm. that have the most struggle and, and the greatest shadow. But it's, it's hard to have a big shadow if, you know, if, if there is that open feedback mm -hmm. yeah. within, within the community with the students, and they can come yeah. up and say, hey, you know, I think you're a little off here, or what you said, I don't know if that's, you know, really you know, spot on. Another or, source for that kind of feedback that might seem really simplistic, but I think it... It's something that every teacher should think about or every spiritual leader should think about. What circle of friends do you have? Yeah. Are they all your students? Or are you just a regular Joe Soap? Are you yeah. just a regular Jane to a group of people yeah. who can call you out, who can yeah. get annoyed with you? And there is no power play at all. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're a teacher or a spiritual leader who doesn't have regular, normal friends then you have to ask why. You have to ask why. Because there is an absence of accountability, there's an absence of connection with, with the regular value system of, of uh, transparency mm -hmm. and openness. And are you able to have regular relationships? Because if you're not able to have regular relationships, that, that dysfunction, if you're living in a Western world and outside of an ashram, that dysfunction is going to come up and out and some pain is going to happen as a result because you're not taking care of your own humanity, your own need for community and for, like, for peers. You're always on a pedestal and that's not sustainable because you have to have some form of, we all have to have some form of a mirror, a mirror of how to function in a regular world, in regular life. That's one of the things we're trying to do with the APST is yeah. to create this sense of of community and you know and a willingness to talk with each other. So we're not you know just all these individual teachers hanging out you know in our own little communities in our own worlds where everyone's telling us we're right all the time and there's this perfected state of consciousness that you know so and so lives in. But that, that this willingness to come together to see each other's humanness. To see each other's divinity, to support each other, support in our each other in okay. our highest, and also to, to provide support for like, hey, look, I'm really, I'm really struggling mm. in this way or that way mm. or in all these ways, and mm. you know, I need some friends here, and I think it can be a beautiful thing. And we're coming from a couple of thousand years of the guru is beyond reproach. Right. So look at the change in the culture we're trying to bring right. about. Yeah. So of course there's going to be backlash. Of course mm -hmm. they are, because what we're saying is like yeah. taboo. Yeah. And you say when you say we're trying to bring about this change in the culture, the culture is changing. It yes. is. And, yes. And we're not doing it. We, no, we're responding we to the change. Characters, that's, yeah. You know, exactly. it, and people are universally feeling the need for something of this nature, mm -hmm. and we're just trying to we're just trying to ride a wave. We're riding a wave that's cresting anyway. Yeah. And trying to articulate it, give a form to it, give some words to it, yeah. so that it can be helpful. For we want to have to keep reminding, using our terminology carefully mm. to make it perfectly clear mm. that we are not some kind of governing body and have no mm -hmm. aspirations to be. 
and no. uh, we have neither the wisdom or the authority to pass judgment on anybody. Mm. We're just trying to enliven in the, in the sort of spiritual community mm. of which we're a part uh, a, an appreciation of this stuff and, and uh, you know, an articulation of what is and is not appropriate that hopefully we can mm -hmm. more or less agree upon all of it. It seems to me that it's the creation of another type of sangha. Yeah. It's another Indeed. it's another sangha another that honors the collective, that honors what's larger than maybe your individual sangha or, or what you call your individual sangha. Yeah, there must um, be some universal values, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe some sanghas are going to be a little bit more off on this mm -hmm. end of the spectrum and others off on that, and others yeah. won't want to have anything to do with it because they yeah. really like orgies or something. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> sure. I mean, fine, if that's what you want to belong to. Then yeah, there's space for all of us. <laughs> So it has to be evolving because because we, we've got learner plates on, you know. Mm -hmm. we, we, that's an Irish thing. <laughs> that your, like first, a, your first two years of driving, you have to yeah, you have to have a symbol on the car to say that you know you're you're still learning. Uh -huh. um, so we we have to be learning all the time. If we're not willing to grow, well then that's shadow. That's shadow. Mm -hmm. There it is. You know, and, and if there is more blind spots that you see or you don't see in yourself, it doesn't matter. It's about having the availability and the transparency to say, yeah, of course there can be hidden shadows within me. Of course the work can still continue. And if we can create that, you know, um, in ourselves and spread that a little bit so that there's that openness, that transparency, that willingness to have a genuine effort to walk our talk, and if we can continue to do that and understand how others talk and walk is very different to us, but where can we meet and where can we support each other so that we don't get locked into being one type of a, um, I don't know, a supportive body, sure. but can be flexible and organic enough to be inclusive. That, that would be great. I don't know what that would look like, mm -hmm. but it would be great you know, mm -hmm. yeah. to try to do well, that. If this thing survives and thrives, mm. it's probably going to look very different in five years than it does now. I hope so. This is just a real so. fledgling little yeah. you know, attempt. Yeah. And we really hope that um, with, as it grows, there will be this collaboration and ebb and flow of opinions and information and, and input and so on among anyone who cares to be involved and that that sort of mutual collaboration will uh, really enable it to evolve. We, we hope it never becomes ossified. And so I, it's apparent to me that we're not going to resolve in this conversation <laughs> whether there should be a two-year moratorium on relationships. And we've had so many conversations about this. So many. <laughs> Any such thing. Yeah. And that's, that's fine. This is the direction this conversation is taken. We're just sort of painting with broad strokes here. And giving a sample, I suppose, of the kind of dialogues that we have and, and yeah. Yeah. no resolution yeah, well, comes, but we keep coming back to the drawing well, we board and talking about it again. And, and well the, yeah. the important thing is, is is you know to study, you know, to study ethics, to grapple with them, to to see, you know, what's true, what makes sense. I mean one of the beautiful things about about studying ethics before you, you step into really messy ethical situations is you can you can form an idea. Okay, how will I respond to this when it comes forward? I mean, one of the things that I see the organization being really helpful for is is for young students or, or, or I'm sorry, young teachers or new teachers who are coming forward mm. who maybe have never studied ethics before, who who don't know it. Well, what is a dual relationship, and and why would that be messy, or why you know how could I get in trouble with being 
friends with my students or becoming romantically involved. And it would be much better to study that, to understand it, to sit with that, these questions for hours and hours before you find yourself as the head of some community and then the community falling you know, under some incredible messy nightmare where tremendous pain has been caused because one didn't take the time to first study this, mm-hmm. to examine, yeah. you know, how would I respond? Yeah. How should I respond? What, what makes sense? You know, how, you know, how do I professionally navigate these things? Yeah. And I think it's something that, you know, as we, we know, it's just, it's radically lacking. Yeah. You know, Rick, you know, has brought this up a lot that you, we would assume that most spiritual teachers have really strong ethics and have a strong high moral high ground, you know, for the place they live and teach from. But if you look at history, yeah. <laughs> yeah. if you look at recent history, yeah. you know, even this, this last summer, our email boxes have filled up mm-hmm. with scandal after mm-hmm. scandal. After, and it's mm-hmm. like, yeah. oh boy, you know, and these were yeah. teachers who had mm-hmm. high levels of realization and yeah. it didn't. Yeah. It ended it ended in a really messy way, but the yeah. sense of if we educate ourselves, if mm-hmm. we if we sit with these questions and deeply inquire, mm-hmm. you know, then we can mm-hmm. uh, in a mm-hmm. in a greater sense serve our communities. Mm-hmm. And boundaries boundaries are learned. Yeah, how to bound- work with power is learned. Yeah. We need to learn these things. There are skills that that Absolutely. we need. And and to, you know, acknowledge our humanity and the Sure. These skills don't just come down the track. It's very rare that that happens, yeah. you know, that the, the perfection of humanity, you know, is directly in line with the movement of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, that's very a rare, rare, rare thing. Very, 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 very yeah. rare, can yeah. I say? Yeah, a lot of myths, a lot of myths, yeah. you know, teach it that way, but yeah. in reality, yeah. it's, it's rarely... No, it well, doesn't roll like that. And the word enlightenment has been associated with saintliness, you know, all yeah. these enlightened people. And so the, the, the implication is that there's a tight correlation between a high level of consciousness and moral behavior. But from what I've seen... Rarely the case. Yeah, it's a very yeah. stretchy rubber band. There may be some correlation, mm-hmm. and eventually it gets pulled along, but boy, it can really stretch far. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, that doesn't, yeah, it doesn't take into account how much practice is involved in being able to have your actions continually be refined such that yeah. they're reflections of your deepest and greatest understanding. Yes. It, it doesn't acknowledge that refinement process yes. mm-hmm. um, to assume that, you know, it's just like, oh, the lights came on, so. Yes, we're good yeah. to go. Yeah, and yeah. it's much nicer to do that refinement work, you know. So, 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 so within a space, within a supportive community, yeah. mm-hmm. before the nightmares begin to unfold or the shadow yeah. starts to become unpacked, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to, to be able to do that in a supportive community, you know, to me, that's a, a tremendous gift. Yeah. And yeah. that's what we're trying to bring forward is this sense of support and community and a willingness to, to together examine these questions. And again, like what Rick was saying, we're not, you know, some judging authority. That is the, the furthest from thing for my nature, or our nature, is to, to judge, but, yeah. but rather to explore these questions and to see this as, as just a part of the spiritual practice, as mm-hmm. a part of the path, to me is a beautiful yeah. thing. Mm. So this, is a, this will be an ongoing conversation, you know? <laughs> yes. and um, 
we could probably make a, a video a week and, and <laughs> explore different aspects of it. And, um, and still not come to an agreement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I guess we should really conclude and say stay sure. tuned. I mean, it's, it's getting yes. late here. It's quarter of 11, and some of us are on East Coast time or Midwest time, and we have our panel discussion tomorrow and everything. So we want to be fresh for that. But we just wanted to make something and get it out yeah. there and put something on the website and stimulate some thought and discussion. So we hope we've done that and uh, appreciate your, your watching this. And yes. We could, if we had the energy and perhaps some more refreshments, we could probably go on for another few hours. <laughs> this guy are, could. Don't give him anything to drink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, thanks for this. Thanks for watching and um, yeah, please you. stay tuned and, and get involved in whatever way you yeah. like in the Association of Professional Spiritual Teachers and, and go to the website professional spiritual teachers dot org dot org and just explore around and it'll be a work in progress and we hope to we hope you'll find yeah. it very useful over the, the coming years yep may the next Buddha be Sangha <laughs>